Welcome to the Docs Who Lift podcast, where we distill and simplify the complexities of a healthy lifestyle, exercise, medicine, and weight loss. We're excited to bring you a podcast that's a prescription for clinical practice, scientific recommendations, and just real life. This is the Docs Who Lift podcast. Hey, and welcome back to the Docs Who Lift podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Spencer Nadolski. got my co-host, Dr. Carl Nadolski. Yeah, he's hi. he's the one crashing around in the background over <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah, I got, oh, I'm, I'm one week post-op, right hip replacement, he, so I'm still supposed to use my washer. <laughs> he's a bionic man. He's got two, uh, now two replaced two hips. hips. He, he's a bum. <laughs> and today we, have a, we have another special guest, and his name is Dr. Luke Laffin. He's a cardiologist out of the Cleveland Clinic, worked as a, a protege to the great uh, Dr. Steve Nissen. Yeah. He, came, and he's, he came specifically recommended from Steve Nissen. Yeah. To that's talk a, about that's this a, topic today. Yeah. It, he's done some cool studies. One, one of the studies that we actually really wanted to talk about was comparing a statin to uh, some commonly used supplements. And he's also the, the director for blood, uh, what is it, blood pressure Um Management preventive, yeah, and pre- preventive cardiologist. Uh, very cool guy, smart guy. We wanted to chat with him. So, so welcome, Luke. Hey, great. Thank you for the kind introduction. Great to speak with both of you today. Yeah. What, what got you into preventive cardiology, like instead of whatever else? What, how'd you get into preventive cardiology? You know, I, I always liked cardiology. And then um, my wife is a dermatologist, and we met as interns. Nice. So we didn't match up in terms of <laughs> internal medicine three years, her programs four years. So I had a little gap year before I was going to match for a cardiology fellowship. And um, the world's hypertension expert is George Backus at University oh, of Chicago. Yeah. And so he's been doing a fellowship there for at some parts of Chicago for over 25 years. So I was his fellow about a decade ago, um, did that, loved it, and then was able to continue it throughout uh, cardio- cardiovascular medicine fellowship. And then a uh, great opportunity came along in Cleveland, which I've jumped on. George Backus, great voice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what, 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 what about, what is it about preventive cardiology as opposed to doing interventional stuff? What did you like about that? Well, I think if you sort of look at the tea leaves and look forward, um, that's really where everything's going, right? Um, you know, we can do all kinds of fancy stuff with wires and catheters as cardiologists, but when you think 10, 20 years in the future, um, we really would like to see atherosclerosis as an orphan disease. Yeah. Um, and there's potentially the tools in the toolbox to do that um, over the next number of years, you know, gene editing, things like that. So I think it's really exciting. Um, and, and so I like that aspect a lot. Man, you're, well, you're speaking our language. I mean, that's... Yeah, we love know, it. I mean, Spencer was kind of uh, interestingly involved in med school uh, when I was in internal medicine residency down at the Naval Medical Center in Portsmouth. And my mentors often were the cardiologists down there because of a lot of my interest in cardiometabolic medicine. Um, obviously, I had the interest in endocrinology, but also obesity and lipids. And and so they were always really trying to get me to go into cardiology to, to because I would only do preventive cardiology. And because I'm sure as hell not going to want to calf anybody. I'm not into procedures. So... You will um, kill somebody. God, well, oh, God, I won't say that now. I got fired again. <laughs> no, just because you're not Man, very dex- dexter. Yeah, your fingers are so hey, fat. You know, I still do thyroid biopsy. So now anybody who's ever had a thyroid biopsy by me, they're going, uh, what the heck did yeah. I just get into? Thyroid biopsies are easy. <laughs> yeah, your fat fingers. Uh, that, no, that's, that's really cool. Um, 
what okay so what are your top recommendations for like preventing atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease I, that's what the, we should the be basics asking. you mean like you're asking him yeah about the, the, his exactly. fundamental for most yeah people. i want to know your yeah what do you tell your patients what do you yeah, what do you yeah. do so I, I tell them really it's a three-pronged approach nutrition physical activity and medications and i show nice. them a picture of you know atherosclerosis when it starts you know you get your difference between your stable and your vulnerable plaques and then what it looks like when a plaque ruptures um, and so I actually have the same laminated card that I show everyone there. Most people take a picture of it. They're like, oh, I want to show my nice. spouse this. Um, and I tell them, look, you know, you got to do the first two, the, the nutrition and the physical activity. The third one, the medicines, it's personalized based on risk, et cetera. Um, and, and so those are the major things that we really stress in this when we see people at Cleveland Clinic awesome. or when I see them. So do you put stat? Do you give everybody a statin? That's what that's what everybody wants to know. Are you a are you a statin chill? So, I mean, you know, I write my fair number of prescriptions for statins. There's no question, um, but I only give them if they need them, right? And oftentimes yeah. it's a discussion. You know, the folks that I see, um, I have an open conversation saying, really, it's not if you're going to get a statin. It's just when we pull the trigger, right? Yeah. I mean, anecdotally. A lot of cardiologists, particularly in the non-invasive preventive space, you know, they start a statin in the mid thirties, early forties. And it's because number one, we believe in it, but number two, um, we've seen enough bad stuff happen. And we've all heard about that, you know, 40 year old dad who just didn't wake up one morning, yeah. right. And left a couple kids. And, uh, and so that is, uh, that's something that we want to avoid. And you have to do all of it, the lifestyle. And, um, if you can get a little help with medicines without any side effects, why not? Yeah. And yeah. So, well, I was just going to say anybody listening, we, we get in these arguments with people online about how every, especially cardiologists, especially the older and crustiest of all cardiologists, and you're a young guy, so that's all right. But like, basically, there's no discussion. Everybody's going on a statin. And what you're basically conveying on your, your clinical practice is what should be done as a shared decision-making process. But ultimately, a lot of people, you know, because of probably lifestyles and, you know, and genetics, of course, too, are could end up on one. But at least you're having the discussion and going over the risks and benefits. I like that. What were you going to say, Casey? Oh, that, well, um, now you made me lose my train of thought. But I was just well, like, whatever. It, does, it doesn't matter. But I, I, I think, it wasn't yeah, I think uh, you know, we often talk about obesity and the and the big picture of cardiometabolic disease, and and it includes you know atherosclerotic disease, and there is a complex genetic background, and so. You know, um, you know, people have di different family histories, uh, different things that have gone on in their lives, uh, you know, different other risk factors. And so I guess one of my questions, since we're doing this and we haven't gotten to our main focus today, is what does uh, trigger a referral to you as a preventive cardiologist? Obviously, if someone is, you know, if someone suffers an event, they have rhythm issues, whatever, heart failure, they're going to see a cardiologist. Um, you know, so I see a lot of high risk people, a lot, a lot of them already have, uh, atherosclerotic disease and, and otherwise I'm often kind of playing the role of a preventive cardiologist, but as the endocrinologist, cause they're seeing me for obesity, diabetes, et cetera. So I'm always interested in what's triggering, um, your local referrals to a preventive cardiologist. 
so there's a couple different pathways. So I'm sort of my main focus um, is resistant hypertension. Mm -hmm. So I see a lot of those folks who they just can't get it controlled with their primary care doctor or other specialists. So that's one area. But when we're thinking about this prevention of atherosclerosis, I see a lot of high risk primary prevention. So maybe elevated LPOA mm -hmm. uh, because I'm very involved in the clinical trial space with that. Um, you know, people, a lot of South Asian descent where, you know, father had a MI at 45, they're in their thirties and they want to make sure that they prevent that. Um, and then a lot of higher risk secondary prevention where maybe they're statin intolerant, they need inclycerin, they need a PCSK9 inhibitor. We see that. Um, and then increasingly in our prevention department, we, we have a, a center for cardiometabolic disorders. So a lot of obesity, uh, metabolic syndrome, um, uh, hypertriglyceridemia, cool. et cetera, and sort of marry those yeah. three medications. Are, are you working with some of the endocrinologists and obesity specialists there? Because I, 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 you know, I know some of them too. Yeah, yeah. So we we have a specific center for cardiometabolic disease, and um, one of our cardiologists in prevention, his name is Dennis Bermer. He's actually um, a board certified endocrinologist and cardiologist. He was wow. a great recruit for us. A number. <laughs> yeah, of years that's ago. intense. Yeah, I've so. I've sometimes wondered if I just wanted to just kind of keep going to school forever or do residency and fellowship forever. I, I that that would be kind of the path I'd go. Um, I think I've seen that guy because I, I think there's only one in the nation. I'm well, pretty sure he's the only one. Is that, training to do that. That's a lot of it's, training. You're just in school forever. <laughs> and he's a great guy, real smart guy. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's yeah. Lucky, lucky to have well, him. Cool. And, and, you know, part of the reason we have you um, to for today is because of your experience and working with, uh, you know, Dr. Nissen and it, with, with, like you said, you do a lot of trials. And so, yes. you know, S Steve Nissen is globally renowned for uh, cardiovascular risk reduction trials, right? I mean, that's kind of one of his that's niches that he's, that's that he's famous thing. for. Yeah. And um, Spencer, are you ready for, to introduce why the heck we're talking today? What what we're yeah? Well, why don't you okay, ask? Well, I didn't watch this. I didn't watch the okay, show. Well, so, all right. So this is <laughs> this is what happened. And people are going to think we're just like piling on uh, Peter Atia. And I'm not going to say poor Peter Atia because he's he's you know I think he does pretty darn he's well rich. for himself by uh, he's being, rich uh, being uh, <laughs> whatever self-proclaimed longevity expert is. But he's a medical physician, um, and he actually says a lot of good things. Good stuff. Well, so yeah, so yeah, a couple of months ago, my family and I, we were watching this show. It was on Disney Plus with uh, um, Chris Helmsworth or Thor, right? Thor. You know, you know Thor. that guy, Luke? Yeah. yeah, so, yeah. so anyways, yeah, he, he was doing this series called Limitless where he was doing these extreme, uh, you know, activities to, you know, to just better himself, better his life, whatever, you know, maybe pushing the limits of what I would consider evidence-based <laughs> therapies, but you know, some of it's psychological and whatever. And, and one of the episodes was about, um, dramatic temperature changes. So he was, he was going to swim in the Arctic ocean. So that was one of his tasks. And then he flipped the switch to the other way. And he, he did a little introduction of this guy named Peter Atia. He said, they hooked me up with this longevity expert, Peter Atia, who's going to take me into one of these really, really hot saunas. And, and they started talking about heat shock proteins and how heat shock proteins can re dramatically reduce the risk of atherogenesis and, and cardiovascular risk. And then in the sauna, Peter Atia made the quote, and I saved it, and I'll, I'll share it when we share this podcast. He says, you know, doing this frequently can reduce your risk of cardiovascular events by 50%. And he said way more than any drug we could even imagine. 
And then he went on and he said 65%. I think he said for Alzheimer's disease. And I thought, what in the world is he talking about? I was like, there's no way there's evidence for that. So we started looking it up. And, um, you know, I found probably what he's kind of referring to um, that I that I sent you guys. Um, but it is far from a randomized controlled trial, but it but it was, a you know, it's a you know, an older started study in, in Finland, a, per, a prospective uh, cohort study of people who use really high heat saunas frequently. And, and there was a correlation, you know, with, with reduced cardiovascular events and mortality. Basically people that, people that used it, not randomized or anything right. like that. They, they didn't intervene and, and send them to start yeah. getting saunas. People that just tended to use those tended to have lower risks. Right. And, and so he's making this claim that using a sauna reduces cardiovascular events better than any medication we could ever imagine. And I thought, my God, now he's telling people this and we have no randomized controlled trial data. Maybe there's something to it. So I don't want to totally dismiss it, but boy, I don't think we should be telling people saunas are better than medications, but we thought, what the heck, we're going to talk to some cardiovascular outcome trialists who might know what the heck is going on here. So, yeah, I would like to hear, why, why do we have trials, uh, Luke? Why do we do randomized controlled trials well, as opposed to just... <laughs> opposed to just observational studies and cohort studies, et cetera. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and the reason is is simple, is that there's certain things that we just cannot control for without the power of randomization. Um, and that's oftentimes true um, in, in association studies and observation studies like the fin Finnish study that you were referring to. Um, but I mean, you can see these all the time when we look at, you know, coffee consumption and cardiovascular mortality or alcohol consumption, etc. Um, and they, they catch a lot of headlines, right? Um, and they can show some pretty profound benefits. But when you actually get down and you do blinded randomized control trials, um, oftentimes those signals go away um, because there's certain things that we account, can't account for. Um, so so-called sort of confounding factors. Yeah, one, one of the famous ones is actually cardiovascular arrhythmias, right? That's, that's, your, that's your arena where they th thought that giving these antiarrhythmics was a good idea until right. they finally actually. Exactly. And I mean, I think that, I mean, there is some data that saunas, uh, you know, they lower blood pressure and you know, yeah. certain biomarkers and all of that. So I'm not anti-sauna. No, and neither are we. Um, but I, I, you know, that clearly that statement is hyperbolic and that's probably why the producers ultimately put that on the show, right. Is to, to, to say that, um, because the, unfortunately, um, the cardiovascular medicine and cardiovascular clinical trials are littered with examples of early stage studies that showed surrogate endpoints or biomarkers that suggested benefit. And then when you actually put it to the test, um, that doesn't hold up. Um, and it's a good thing that we have those tests because we don't want to do things that are you know, not helpful, but even could potentially mm -hmm. harm people. Yeah, exactly. So do we, do we actually have drugs that are been studied that are actually pretty good at reducing cardiovascular yeah. and, and people risk. are very interested in kind of these, you know, we always talk about these relative risks and and that's confusing for absolute risk, you know, and the numbers needed to treat. And, and of course it has to do with, um, you know, baseline risk. I, I don't know if you feel comfortable kind of trying to explain that in a lay perspective. So people have an idea of what kind of numbers we're even talking about when we talk about, you know, 50% reduction, because that's sounds 
Yeah, right. well, let me let me give some examples. I mean, so uh, as much as your audience may understand, so there's other medicines to lower cholesterol on top of statins, and those have been studied more recently. Um, and the first set of those were not FDA approved um, until they showed not only that cholesterol and or other biomarkers were improved, but they actually reduced hard cardiovascular endpoints. So strokes, heart attacks, need for any type of revascularization. Um, some of the best examples of those are the monoclonal antibody PCSK9 inhibitors. So Evolocumab and Alirocumab. Um, and when you look at those trials, um, they enroll generally higher risk individuals. But when we look at the number of individuals that actually had one of those cardiovascular events, you know, it's in about a little bit over 10%. Okay. When you take the drug, that's in the placebo arm. Okay. In the people that actually got the drug, eh, you might get, you know, 2% absolute lowering, but a much more significant, um, you know, hazard ratio in terms of uh, uh, relative risk reduction, right? In the 0.85 range, et cetera. Um, so there's a very big difference. And the, the issue that we're running into in cardiovascular medicine is that our therapies are so good now yeah. that <laughs> we need to enroll you know, tens of thousands of patients to oftentimes see a signal. So, um, so that's what, that's what we're sort of looking at when we think about these absolute versus relative risk. It, okay. And this kind of gets into your study that you ran. Why did you, so t tell us about the study that you did that compared statins to supplements and why you guys wanted to do this. Cause this is an interesting. Sure. Yeah. So this was a, this was a, a great study that I was really happy to be a part of. Um, it's called the supplements placebo or receive statin study. Um, and it was really done to, you know, all these supplements out there are marketed for some type of, you know, cardiovascular disease prevention, or they say heart health or heart risk reduction. I um, mean, these are all really coded terms that don't mean much, um, but they don't have to, um, at least from a supplement perspective. So what we did was we randomized um, 199 participants to either five milligrams of rosuvastatin, which is a, a low, the lowest dose of rosuvastatin, but technically a moderate intensity statin, or to placebo, or one of six supplements. You know, your, your ones like garlic, red yeast rice. Um, we had a fish oil supplement on there. We had turmeric. We had cinnamon. Um, all things that, when you look at market research, they they're being taken for heart health reduction. And what we did was we just compared um, the LDL cholesterol lowering was the primary endpoint um, compared with each of these supplements. Um, and we did it over uh, patients took the uh, took the uh, intervention for a month, and then we measured the change in LDL cholesterol, which was the primary endpoint. We also looked at markers of inflammation like CRP and other cardiovascular biomarkers uh, like HDL cholesterol, triglycerides, et cetera. And the take-home point of the study was, you know, five milligrams of rosuvastatin, vastly superior um, in terms of lowering LDL cholesterol, which, as you know, is causative of atherosclerosis, um, compared to placebo and any of the six supplements. Um, and interestingly, we saw certain supplements actually had mm -hmm. negative effects on certain biomarkers, like garlic increased LDL cholesterol. So, I saw that. Yeah, I was like, wow. That's going to upset and, a lot of people. <laughs> and you know the the issue is, and it's it's a supplement. It's garlic. Yeah. It's not a it's not actual yeah. garlic that we ingest necessarily. Um, and, and so it just speaks to you know these supplements are are not well regulated. If we have tools to to lower cardiovascular risk, and the important part about who we enrolled is this wasn't you know young folks like us on this call, right? These was people at 
elevated risk for uh, over the next 10 years of a stroke or heart attack. Um, and so that's why we couldn't do a long-term mm -hmm. trial because it would be unethical, basically. Yeah. 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 Unethical. Yeah. Um, and, and so these are people that by the guidelines should be having a discussion with their doctor about starting cholesterol lowering medicines. So this kind of gets back to the point. So you got some marketing person out there saying garlic, uh, garlic helps, um, with cardiovascular disease. And maybe the, I'd have to look at some of the uh, observational data out there. It looks like those who take more garlic supplements reduces their risk by X, Y, Z. And then you actually do a trial and you weren't looking at hard outcomes, but you're looking at the biomarkers that we know at least are involved in the process. And it shows that, Hey, this may have actually worsened certain things. Whereas the tried and true uh, pharmaceutical statin. Actually, the one that surprised me the most was the red yeast well, rice. Yeah, that's a statin. Um, it, well, it has monoclonal K, which is like a lovastatin, but they've been removing this monoclonal oh, K, and maybe know. you know about this. Some of them just don't even have any much of it in there. So this gets into the whole, like, I don't know how these regulated. You don't know what I, you're I mean, getting, or, or like, unless you had... purpose because of so many people are anti-statin, and they were like, "Wait, I was I, this well, it's not a statin." I don't know. And we all say, "Actually, it's a statin." <laughs> and then Luke, do you know much about the, about the whole monoclonal K stuff? I mean, you yeah, might have had to. Yeah, exactly. I mean, really, sort of anything in red yeast rice that's that's purified, it's a monoclonal K. It's essentially mm -hmm. lovastatin, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just it's just a dirty form of it, shall we say? Um, you know, there are studies that show reductions in LDL cholesterol with red yeast rice, but that was sort of the point of the study was if you buy this medicine over the counter, you have no idea what's in yeah. it, right? You could buy the same medicine one month and it's the same bottle the next month. And we don't know. They may have changed the formulation. They don't have to do any testing. They don't Nothing. Have to tell you that. And we have to remember too, that these supplements, they're not benign necessarily. Right, they right. Have thousands of emergency department visits every year um, yeah. for, you know, supplement use. Yeah, we tell that to people all the time. Yeah. I mean, like if you're taking something because you think it's doing something, if it is doing something, that means it's a drug and it can do something good or bad. And and so yeah. that means it's a drug. It's a, it is it a has drug. effects. Let's be clear. Right. Exactly. Supplement <laughs> Has an effect, yes. What I tell all my patients is, you know, particularly when it comes to blood pressure, and you know, I get asked at least once a week, oh, "Doc, is there any supplements I should take after we go through that whole spiel that I talked about?" And um, you know, I tell them, I, I would like number one things like your blood pressure and your cholesterol to be under control. That's our number one goal. But our number two goal is to do it on the least medicine possible. Mm -hmm. So if it takes one medicine, great. If it takes three. Eh, not as not as good, but we'll do it right. Um, and most people buy into that. Process. Yeah, that's great. And because we get, I mean, yes, yeah, Spencer, you saw that who uh, the person that's like anti medicine for whatever thinks thinks we're all just getting paid by giving people medicines and not helping with diet and exercise. And it's like you must not know who you're talking to, because <laughs> we always want to do everything without medicine if we can get away with it. But we want to reduce people's risks and improve their health one way or the other. I, I just want to know at a resistant hypertension clinic, how many cases I, of I primary hyperaldosterone? Spencer's obsessed with my hyperaldo <laughs> diagnosis. I mean, I, I, well, you, he must have a high prevalence. Think. Yeah, well, I mean, you just have to, any, honestly, any physician that treats hypertension is going to have a high prevalence. Yeah, boy. The problem is yeah. we don't check for it, See? right? Just Spencer do the test. Baby. 
I mean, I actually had a, a conversation <laughs> with a colleague this morning, a you know, uh, young woman on Losartan hydrochlorothiazide. And I say, well, you should just check an aldo union mm -hmm. ratio, right? And he's like, well, aren't, don't they interact with it and change right. the assay and, you know, change, change? I'm like, it doesn't matter. Just yep. screen, okay? Maybe you'll get a false negative, but it's not going to cause a false positive with those. Um, just screen and then think about yep. it later. That's, that's, yeah, what I perfect. that's great. Yeah, no, I that's, love it. Yeah. We, we probably have to get our primary care friends to, to do even more of that. And we all should be doing more of that. Well, that's a, that's a very little known thing. I only knew it because I was in residency and you were in endocrine and I was laughing. I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to start. You sent me some papers. I'm like, oh man, the prevalence is kind of high. And we're, and we're giving spironolactone as like the last thing. And that's the one yeah. thing that works. It's like, okay, that makes sense to me. Anyway, people listening, yeah. like, what are you guys right, talking about? Anyway. Um, well, let me, let me whatever. circle back a little bit. Okay. To this whole sauna thing, because, you know, we talked about, all right, so we, we don't have, you know, we have this observational data. There are some hypothesis generating thoughts, right? So there's some thoughts that, well, maybe maybe it's good for us. I don't know. Do you, either of you guys know this heat shock protein issue? Is, is there really evidence for that? Because they made a big deal about it in the show, and I, I just don't know. A lot of bi biological plausibility, but it's not. It's it's one of these things where you start getting into yeah. the weeds of the mechanisms, okay. and so you know. So then there's that big observational cohort that that looks like it it has some some correlation, right? And then I think I sent you guys both. There was a randomized controlled trial. Now this gets into like what we talk about the surrogate markers of the bio biochemical stuff. The the title was it was effects of regular sauna bathing in conjunction with exercise on cardiovascular function. It was a multi arm randomized controlled trial. And essentially, they, they, they compared the effects of exercise and sauna bathing to regular exercise um, by itself. Um, you know, they had 50, 50 people, almost 50 people around age 50, they already had low physical activity levels, and at least one traditional cardiovascular, you know, risk factor, um, randomized to exercise and 15 minute post exercise sauna, um, exercise or just control for eight weeks. And it looks like they had some improved, um, slightly improved blood pressure, uh, maybe some cardiorespiratory fitness stuff, um, you know, maybe even like some, some you know, lipid things, uh, you know, in the sauna compared to no sauna after exercise. But I don't know. I, I feel like, you know, that, that at least suggests some, um, you know, surrogate marker benefit that, that certainly seems like maybe it could lead to improvement. I just don't know how applicable any of this stuff is and, and they're putting it on mainstream stuff. I just want to I just want to know if Dr. Laffin is yeah. is having his resistant hypertension patients <laughs> yeah, going into a sauna. If he if he is then I'm then I'm yeah, going to start recommending it. I'm not I'm not dissuading them from using it if they ask, but it's definitely not part of my spiel with them saying that, you know, you need to do this. Um, I mean, look, this is something where it's generally for patients with stable hypertension or stable ischemic heart disease um, can probably do it safely without any harms. Could there be benefit? Yeah, there definitely could. There is biological plausibility, probably lowers blood pressure a little bit, um, you know, probably improves cardiorespiratory fitness to a little bit if it increases your heart rate as much as they allude mm -hmm. to in some of those observational studies, you know, up over 100 beats per minute. Um, is it replace exercise? No, there's no data, obviously, to support that. Um, so it's not something that I'm going to commonly recommend, but I don't see any harm yeah. to it for the vast Sounds majority. Good. Now, unless, good. so I'll, I will say this. So I, Luke, did you play any sports in high school, college or anything like that? Yeah, I played oh, basketball. Really? Where'd you, did you go to college and play basketball? 
I, I did not play in college. I played in high school. I'm from Calgary, oh, Canada. Interesting. So cool. Okay. There. Well, so so yeah. I, I wrestled at Michigan State. Spencer played a little football, wrestled, but he was a heavyweight, so he doesn't count because he didn't care about this stuff. But we would sit in. I had obesity. I'm not even supposed to say that because I don't think we were supposed to back then. Anyways, we used to sit in the sauna after our practices. Um, so maybe that was really good for our. <laughs> maybe it was good for our cardiovascular health, except that we were doing it to get dehydrated and make weight. So I'm not so sure that was healthy. Yeah. Oh, Canada. That's, uh, uh, I mean, you know, you, we see all the old guys in the, in the gyms, they're all, you know, basically naked. It's that there, maybe it's really good for us. I don't know. I guess I, my point is, I, you know, with I, Peter Adia, you know, like I, I, at, at, Adia, 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 you know, I, I just, Adia. I don't like these big, huge, um, claims being made, claims. telling I hate people them. how I hate to them. reduce their cardiovascular risk and improve their longevity without any data. And yet what it ultimately turns into is it turns into the kind of this anti sort of real science giving real known, uh, you know, medical advice. Like we have nutrition data, we have exercise data, you know, about as good as it gets for, for longevity and cardiovascular risk. And then we have some medications. I just, I guess I just don't understand why they can't talk about things like saunas in a more reasonable way, but I know that doesn't make the money and it doesn't make the show. Yeah, It's I, marketing. I it's all it's marketing. Crazy. The best example that I have, you know, when we talk about diet with my patients, I, mean, I tell them, you know, there's a thousand books by a thousand different cardiologists, endocrinologists about heart healthy diet. Mm -hmm. You know, go on Amazon, you can do it. 90 to 95% of what they say is exactly mm -hmm. yes. the same. I mean, you guys know that. <laughs> but they got to sell mm -hmm. their book somehow. So mm -hmm. the five to 10% that different, you know, don't eat this yep. oil or, you know, um, eat this on Sundays yeah. every week. That's how they put on their cover. And that's what they sort of get you hooked on because it's not, it's not sexy to say, Oh yeah, eat a balanced diet. Yeah. Every once in a while you yeah. can have some red meat. That's, right? um, yeah. Oh my God. Luke is, is definitely in our circle. My God. He speaks, yeah. he speaks our language. You are right on the money. He's a reasonable, yeah, he's a reason shell, a nuanced shell. Appropriate, reasonable, basic lifestyle, no. evidence-based no, lifestyle advice. We've all gone broke because of it. <laughs> nice. Th thank you so much for coming on. It's a nice little chat. We might have you on in the future to talk about more stuff about hypertension, but I uh, appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much, gentlemen. Appreciate it. Anybody uh, out there has a family member struggling with hypertension or whatever and I uh, got a kick out of this podcast make sure you share and give us a nice little review oh, does, does luke have any social media or anything Apple. else we need to he's on twitter oh, i just I, added him so on twitter if you want to check out his twitter you want to yell yeah, at luke on twitter go ahead oh god i can oh i can imagine here's our outro this podcast is for entertainment and education and information purposes only remember the physicians on this podcast are not your physician it should not be considered professional or personalized medical advice it should not be used to replace speaking with your physician or medical professional to discuss your specific health concerns the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose or treat any condition as a result we are not responsible for any unwanted medical outcomes the views and opinions discussed are of those of the host only and do not represent those of any other entities.